The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, July 9th, 2022. All right. Somewhere underneath this absurd spectacle I see before me are five broken pieces of Captain Rios. Marvel Saga Monday. As talked about last digest, starting with this volume two, every other week I'm going to look at an issue of the Marvel Saga, the official history of the Marvel Universe. 25 issues every other week in a segment entitled, as I stated, Marvel Saga Monday. So what is the Marvel Saga? This came out in late 1985 as a way to kick off Marvel's 25th anniversary. And as stated in the inside page, this uh, this is taken directly from uh, the editor Danny Fingeroth. And Danny writes, The entire sprawling body of events that is Marvel history, events that you've been clued into in bits and pieces over nearly 25 years of comics, is finally available in a sequential narrative format. That is the essence of the Marvel saga. He continues, The series is designed for maximum impact as an exciting story. We've taken sequences from many diverse sources, along with some newly drawn material, and crafted it into a story. There are numerous names in the credit box. I will point out Peter Sanderson, who is the writer and researcher. You might recognize that name as the man behind all of the research leading up to Crisis on Infinite Earths. The new pages from issue, uh, the new pages in issue one from one through five were drawn by Ron Friends and Al Milgram, cover art by Ron Friends and Bob Layton, and then Danny Fingeroff, editor, with Mark Grunewald and Ralph Macchio as consulting editors. Prior to the Marvel saga, Marvel had already released the first run of the official hot, uh, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe. At the time that Marvel saga was released, the second issue of the deluxe version was released. They were already doing indexes at this time for The Amazing Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. Secret Wars 2 was up to issue 6. Over at DC, they were doing Who's Who. That was up to issue 10. And Crisis was up to issue number 9. So why am I covering the Marvel Saga? Well, one, to read my books, number one. (laughs) Um, Initially, it was because I was purchasing History of the Marvel Universe. But before I wanted to read that, I wanted to read the original, you know, quote-unquote, History of the Marvel Universe from over 30 years earlier, and uh, I was doing this on Twitter, and what I was doing was taking little screenshots of certain panels or sequences, and it really became kind of like a visual thread per issue, and I got up to issue number eight before, I don't know, I don't know why it stopped, Um, you know, things just get in the way, or I just tend to abandon projects all over the place. So the more and more I tapped into this Marvel history, the more I realized that there was a lot to talk about. There was there was information that I hadn't been exposed to, 
a lot of untold tales that I wondered if Marvel had touched on later after the mid-80s. There were all of these connections, certainly connections that the saga was making, but then connections that I was making, uh, you know, based on all of the information uh, post-1985, 1986, 1987. The series ended in 1987. And it's a way to read Marvel history without reading every issue, which someone has already done and done, and they, you know, wrote a book. Um, I'm doing this with the full knowledge that this is Peter Sanderson and company's version of the Marvel history based on the books that they are deciding to pull from, you know. For lack of a better word, it's a little bit biased, or maybe it's just very intentional, right? They want to craft a certain story, and I certainly understand that. Plus, there's a lot of information that was revealed after all of this. So my notes, what's going to follow in this uh, Marvel Saga Monday segment is just me listing off uh, some notes and some untold tales and facts that I'm discovering, things that you may already know, things that I'm discovering. And it gives me a chance to present my kind of analysis with Marvel's large historical narrative. Uh, Along the way, maybe it'll make you want to read some of your comics. It'll make me want to read a lot of these origin stories or some of the issues where they are pulling this this stuff from. Um, I certainly am keeping a list of things that I would want to read after the Marvel saga, because Marvel had put out a whole bunch of other sagas uh, after this. And again, just keep in mind that all of this is Marvel history up to 1985 with the early issues. As I mentioned last digest, this is my way to have an anchor segment, very similar to what I was doing with First Issue Special from DC. So let's jump in. Marvel Saga Issue 1 released September of 1985. All of the material in this first issue was pulled from Fantastic Four number 1, number 2, issue 271, and issue 273. Tales to Astonish, number 27 and 44, Avengers 227, Alpha Flight 2, 3, and 12, and Thing, number 1 and number 10. Basically, this first issue goes from the Big Bang all the way through to Fantastic Four, uh, number 2. The first five pages, however, are all totally new, created for this issue, which is really cool, and it moves quickly from the Big Bang through to events that would eventually give birth to the uh, Fantastic Four. As I'm giving these notes, as I'm doing this segment, I'm going to assume that you have either read the Marvel Saga or you are currently reading along with me. And I'm not going to touch on everything because there's just way too much. So what did I pull from those first five pages? First of all, has the story ever been told about how the elders of the universe came to be? There's a bit about all of the various races and how all of the elders of the universe are representatives from these various races. And I just think it would be kind of cool to see that story told in some kind of long, 
limited series or ongoing series. Uh, it could be almost like Game of Thrones in space, you know. I imagine that there are some races that are more advanced than others, or some of them have a more benevolent culture and some do not, you know, especially considering the ones that we were left with, you know, like the gardener and the champion, etc. All of those races had to have been different. And I think it would be really cool to see their individual points of development. Um, you know, imagine an elder that realizes who he is and, and instead of living through the growth of his civilization, he just decides to go to sleep and then wake, wakes up as like the last man, kind of like the time trapper story. I think that's a great story. Someone please point to me if the elders of the universe got um, a major look in comics. I want to know. Uh, when they start getting into Atlantis and Conan, they mentioned the uh, location of Volusia. And I was, and I thought, well, as a kid, that name went right over my head. When I did research, because I'm researching everything I don't know, I realized that that's a reference to Marvel's King Cull stories. I was like, oh, because the next panel shows Conan and Red Sonia, but the name drop of Volusia for Cull, that never registered to me as a kid. That was only something I got with this reading. By page four and five, we get to all the various characters that we know, um, all awaiting the birth of the new Marvel Age. Characters like Captain America, Namor, Fury, Tony Stark, Bruce Banner, Hank Pym, Don Blake, uh, Professor, or well, Charles Xavier, and Gene Strange, Matt and Foggy, Peter Parker. And this is all on the same day that the, the Fantastic Four are getting ready to fly off into space. And again, this is kind of, you know, I love when comics pull everything about their universe together and nobody really knows each other, but they are they are all existing in a moment of time. You know, it's very much like Heroes or Sense8 or whatever, you know. I love this kind of stuff. So those pages um, I really liked. And when you start to see all of... Um, how Marvel's military is involved in all of these origin stories. It reminded me of the two-issue 1998 conspiracy miniseries that did just that. It connected all of the military and all of the generals, etc., and showed how they were involved in the origin stories of all of the Marvel characters. So that's something that I read, you know, I, I've read a bunch of times and I put on my uh, reading list to do after the Marvel Saga. Maybe I'll talk about that way down the road. Even later on in the issue, during the origin of James Hudson and Department H and Alpha Flight, the American military, as told in those John Byrne Alpha Flight issues, is again present as James Hudson is creating all of that technology for his future suit, you know. So it's like, there it is again. We jump into the origin of the Fantastic Four, or the pre-origin. We get the character of Gormu, warrior of Kralo. This is an insert into the origins of the Fantastic Four by John, Fer by John Byrne from issue 271, as told in the style of Lee and Kirby. And it gi gives Reed the impulse for space tra travel, 
as a means of defending Earth from future aliens. And I was like, oh, in many ways, that's kind of like the impulse that Tony Stark has in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where suddenly he wants to create an armor around the world. And this is a way to give Reed Richards some kind of idea of why he should have his space travel. In many ways, that pulls the origin out of just being part of the space race and allows it to be set almost in any time, if you really think about it. Because, you know, whether it's Marvel of the 60s or Marvel of the 80s, if they wanted to, you know, they have that sliding time scale. If they want to say that aliens aren't publicly known until 1995, well, then that's where you could set the Fantastic Four origin. So, you know, it's it's an interesting addition to the origin story. Wherever they are pulling the origin story of the Fantastic Four, I think some of it is from the original Fantastic Four number one, and some of it is from that those Thing issues. I'm struck how emotional a lot of their initial transformations are. Certainly Thing has an aggressive behavior. It's very Hulk-like in those early stages. And he has an odd fascination for Sue, which I don't remember that being a thing, but I haven't read those stories, and I don't know if that's a holdover to current Fantastic Four stories. I mean, does, does Ben Grimm have a hankering for Sue, or did he? I don't know. Um, this has been stated many times, but it is quite ballsy for Reed to name himself Mr. Fantastic just because he can stretch. That's hilarious. Uh, these early stories take place in Central City in California, not to be confused with the hometown of Flash. And Reed jumps to the whole notion of fighting for humanity and wanting to help mankind fairly quickly, uh, especially now that they have powers. But I guess that's why they are heroes. Page 18 and 19, when we learn about the Mole Man, uh, I took note of how Marvel's Earth is just riddled with underground tunnels. Um, it reminded me of like the future of the of the Legion of Superheroes in DC Comics. And then I remember on Twitter I posted, has anyone used that concept um, of all the various races, uh, you know, that are subterranean, which we'll see later on in some of the other Marvel sagas. And someone did reply that they did a Subterranean Wars annual crossover well after the Marvel saga had been released. And I, you know, there's another one. There's another future read uh, to see how they handled that kind of concept. Page 21, this is where we get James Hudson and he meets Heather, his future wife. Uh, she He meets her as a teen and that's something that Byrne does a lot, you know. He had Reed Richards and Sue meeting when she was only 12 years old. I can think of other pairings along those lines, and that's kind of just messed up. Um, page 24, we see Wolverine as part of James Hudson's story. Uh, this was back when Wolverine's origin wasn't as convoluted. Um, I'm not certain how much of his connection to Department H is played up after the fact, certainly after something like Weapon X and all all of uh, the other origin stories for Wolverine, like Origins itself. Um, but I do know that somewhere along the way, he the, the Hudsons meet Wolverine 
as he's, uh, you know, walking through the woods in the snow in Canada. And that all takes place after Weapon X. So it's like a lot of these origin stories, even though that bit of origin was probably laid out in the 80s, I think, maybe the 70s, but the 80s, Weapon X obviously isn't until the early 90s. So they had to morph all that together. That has to be the most complicated timeline um, ever for Marvel, you know, because they just keep adding stories and more stories to Wolverine's past. You know, let's pick a year that he hasn't touched yet. And there is a Wolverine saga that they put out. And I think even like a Wolverine encyclopedia. Page 24, we see that James was inspired by Reed Richards and his, um, you know, journey to space. Um, and that made me think, okay, well then these two characters, James and Reed, they have to be contemporaries almost. And Ben, you know, they almost have to be like the same age. Um, we see that nine years passed from the time that James quit um, AMCAM, which is where he developed his suit, and then nine years until he becomes Guardian. Six of those years were after the Fantastic Four debut. So I don't know how that plays out, but you have to imagine... Alpha Flight doesn't come about until Giant Size Era X-Men. So are they saying that it takes six years from Fantastic Four number one to Giant Size? I guess that makes some kind of sense. Page 25, we see Maria Trovaya, Hank Pym's first wife. And she would be the mother to the new Wasp that was running around Marvel in the past couple years. Page 28, after Hank Pym has his first adventure... Um, being shrunken down, he destroys his potions by pouring them down a drain. And I was like, okay, well then where do they end up? And do they mix and form some kind of like new formula? This is an untold story here. I want to see a follow-up as the mixed formula heads to the, to the sewer system and mutates a group of alligators, you know, teenage mutant shrinking gators. And then the last few pages... We get the early appearances of the scrolls from Fantastic Four number two. We get a shot of the first four that we see, uh, three or four. I can't tell if the one scroll is meant to be female. Um, they are designed with a little more hair, or the skull cap is a little larger, or it's just heavier inked, you know? Is that supposed to be female? I don't remember. Did gender even matter when it came to impersonating the Fantastic Four? Is that why one of them has more of a, a female kind of look. Uh, and then later stories, these scrolls will eventually get turned into cows and burgers. Ew. So there you go. My first foray into Marvel Saga. Short and sweet. Not going to try to be too long with this. Just going to hit some points and some ideas. Uh, all from issue one. And next time around, we will take a look at issue number two. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for magic. Good evening, Gotham. I'm Zatanna. Top 5 Tuesday. Top 5 comic book pet peeves. Both in comics and about comics. I'm not exactly sure why this topic was even considered, but when it hit in my brain, and all of the selections started to fall into place, I thought, okay, this is a perfect top five. Top five things 
either in comics or about comics that are my pet peeves, which, you know, it's all very self-explanatory. So let's go to number one. This is one that isn't new. I've talked about it many times before, so I will just get it out of the way. Cover dates versus release dates. Cover dates are usually not release dates, especially when it comes to Marvel and DC. So the date you see on a cover is not usually when it was released. In fact, the date on the cover means it was released anywhere from two to three months prior. So if you see cover date of December of, you know, 1983, at that time with DC, it was three months. That means it had come out in um, uh, September. In more modern comics, it's usually a two-month gap. So I see a lot of people on Twitter celebrating different anniversaries, and you know I'm a big comic history guy, and I see them, you know, saying, hey, it's the 50th anniversary of this, or it's the 25th anniversary of that. And I go and look it up, and I go, no, no, you missed it by, you know, a couple months here and there. I know, I know, I know, it's not important in the grand scheme of things. That's why these are pet peeves. Um, but I have unfollowed a few Twitter history accounts because of it, because it's just, it's just wrong information. Speaking to all of this, I came across a letter column in Superman 268 featuring Superman and Batgirl. It's the issue I read because, uh, in one of the previous digests, uh, where I was talking about Superman, Clark and, and Barbara Gordon going on a date, uh, Chuck Coletto on Twitter said, oh yeah, that happened in Superman 268. So of course I had to read it. And I talked about that in a previous digest. But when I read the letter column, someone wrote in and said, whatever happened to the missing May 1973 issue? In Superman 263, your coming super attractions gave an interesting account of what to expect in that forthcoming May issue. I was quite surprised that there was no May issue. The stories described in the April issue appeared in the June issue. So E. Nelson Bridwell responds by saying, An executive decision was made to move up the dating of the entire DC line, shipping the May and May-June dates so that the next issues were dated June and June-July. The decision was made after those coming attractions were written. There was no change in the number and no issues were missed, of course. And if you go and look, Superman 263 shipped in February, cover date April, two months. Superman 264 shipped in March, cover date of June, three months. And I was trying to think, why would that be? And the only thing I could think of is, you know, this is the early 70s, comics are still being sold mostly about through newsstands, and maybe they wanted to give their comics a little more shelf life, so that if they are receiving their books in, well, for instance, March, and they see it as a cover date of June, well, they're going to sell it for three months as opposed to two months. That's the only thing I could really think of. Now, as far as DC is concerned, they would hang on to that three-month gap all the way through until the end of 1988, uh, where at the end of 1988, they had these weird cover dates. It was like 1988 
winter of 88, holiday of 88. And eventually what they did is they went back to the two-month gap. And I don't know, is that because comics were not being sold so much on newsstands by that point? It was more the direct market? I don't know. I don't exactly know any of that history. I just thought that letter column was real interesting and speaks to this pet peeve of mine that that especially in a lot of those older comics. And again, Marvel and DC, usually image, uh, especially, you know, recent image, but it might have even been in some of the older image comics. The cover date does correspond to the release date, usually, sometimes, not across the board. But as far as Marvel and DC, it does not. So there's there's that number one pet peeve. Number two pet peeve, uh, kind of along the same, same lines of dealing with stuff on the cover. Series that end in just odd numbers, in just weird number choices. For instance, Wonder Woman Volume 1 ends with issue 329. It's a 48-page final issue. It's a crisis crossover in the mid-80s. It's got a great Jose Luis Garcia Lopez cover, but it ends on 329. What's, what is that? Why? What is 329? Why don't you just go to 330, right? Oddly enough, Wonder Woman Volume 2, started by George Perez, ending around Infinite Crisis, that ended with issue 226, but for some reason that one didn't bother me that as much. Now, Let's look at Flash. Flash Volume 1, even though it started with Flash 105, inheriting the number from Flash Comics, it ends with issue 350 around the crisis. Yay, great, that's a great number, 350. Volume 2 started with Wally West uh, around the time of Legends, ended with issue 230 in 2006. Okay, I can take that, that's good. But then they restarted it in 2007, and they ran it up to issue 247 in 2009. Why? 247. Why? Just go to 250. Just, what are you doing? Why do that? Why Why do that to me? Uh, Starbrand ran out of steam with issue 19, and they said 19 in a 19-issue limited series. What? No. No. Wrong. Here's one. Here's... Okay, then you have those titles that are like, ah, yes, perfect. The second Firestorm volume, even though it had some crazy title change-ups, right? It was like Fury of Firestorm, the Nuclear Man, then it was Firestorm, then it was Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. It at least runs to issue 100. Great, awesome, crisp, clean, done. Superboy, the clone Superboy that began in 1994, also ends in issue 100. Love that, that's great. All-Star Comics, okay, eventually it becomes All-Star Western, right, and they let that ride out for a long time, but then in the mid-70s, they decide to revive All-Star Comics, and they went back to the numbering just prior to All-Star Western, so they go from issue 58, but they stop at issue 74. Seven, why? One more issue, 75, boom, great, you know, I, I feel like really great round numbers, Some I don't know, sometimes it might even help sales, right? It just sounds better, 75. And then the one that really bothers me, I don't know why, DC Comics Presents ends with issue 97. 
just three more issues. They couldn't have squeezed out three more stories. Come on. All right, let's talk about some comic book art here. Here's my third pet peeve. When artists draw Dick Grayson and Coriander, Starfire, to be the same height. No. No, 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 no. Especially if they draw Starfire shorter than Dick Grayson. That's just wrong. In several of the Who's Who entries, Dick Grayson is listed as 5'10". Honestly, even that feels a little too tall. Usually Dick and Donna, Wonder Girl and, and Nightwing, they're usually the same height. Starfire in Who's Who, and, and a few of the Who's Who, she's listed as six foot four. Now, unless they're counting her hair, that is, yes, that is exactly how Paris used to draw her. Her, Starfire and Cyborg were usually the same height, and then Kid Flash was usually next. So when they match her to be Dick Grayson's height, it's, uh, that's just all kinds of wrong. So artists, do better. Do better with that, please. Number four. This one might be a little bit touchy. This one is concerning collections. When I support a limited series or an indie comic, and then they go and they say, okay, now we're going to put out a collection, and they put in all of these bells and whistles, they advertise the new collection with new material, and it just makes me grind my teeth. That really, really bugs me. I don't mean necessarily like, you know, ongoing series that, you know, maybe they put some sketches in in a trade, they put a script in a trade, or they put, you know, covers or whatever, anything like that. That that doesn't bother me. It's it's really when it has to do when when certain artists and creators, you know, they always say, if you support the single issues, that's how we go to the collections. Okay, that's great. We are there, you know, every month supporting your single issues, getting the attention onto the title so that there could be an eventual trade collection. And then they say, oh, and there's going to be all new material, maybe even an all new short story. And I'm just like, I'm sorry, what? Why? (laughs) And this is probably a problem that is a little outdated maybe now. Um, This was something that was really going on like during the 2000s mostly and a little bit into the 2010s. But nowadays, I mean, pretty much every title is guaranteed a collection. So it's not so much a problem. I don't see it as much. But back then when people were really trying to champion people to go get those single issues... And then deciding to put out, you know, these amazing collections, I used to really, it just used to irk me. And I've had some people say, well, it's just like DVDs, right? DVDs always have extra content. And I'm like, okay, I don't understand your analogy. Is when I go see a movie, just a movie in a movie theater, if that's my choice, someone else decides to buy a DVD, that's their choice. But I don't, I don't walk out of the movie theater with anything, right? Like I, that's, that doesn't make that, that analogy is not right. You know, now if there are single issues next to a collection and I decide to buy one over the other, that's different. I'm talking about the only thing you can get is single issues. 
Maybe there isn't even a trade guaranteed, but then along the way, they're like, great, we can do a trade, we're going to put in extra content, etc., etc. You know, that to me is a little bit different. And I just, it used to really bug me. Now, to be fair, there are some creators who absolutely put extra content into the single issues and purposely say that that content won't show up in the trades. That's great. You know, it's like, yay for supporting us, you know. For me, it's really a simple answer. If you know you're going to put more material into a collection, then just put that material out digitally, you know? Charge me for it, a few bucks, or even the price of a comic, right? That's worth it for me to get that extra material at maybe another comic price rather than paying a full trade cost, especially if it's a hardcover that's like $25, $30. You know, maybe I don't want that. There are some of us that don't like trades, I am not a big trade hardcover collector. It's, you know, it has to be sort of a special thing or a series that I just follow a lot, but I, I don't just automatically go to the trade. So if you're someone who is going to put extra material uh, into a trade that wasn't in the singles and those singles help to support that trade, then you better put that material out somewhere else because, you know, I have stopped supporting certain creators because of that. And finally, number five, and honestly, I think this is the pet peeve that made me think of this entire segment because I've seen it a few times here and there. And it concerns Zatanna, and it concerns Zatanna's spells. Zatanna speaks each word backwards. She does not speak the entire sentence backwards as well as the words, right? So if she says teleport to the moon, she reverses the lettering of the words, but the sentence would still read teleport to the moon. It would not read moon the to teleport, you know, and I've seen people, you know, they kind of do the on Twitter or somewhere else, you know, they whatever, they try to mimic Zatanna and they reverse the sentence. Okay, whatever. You know, it, it bothers me a little bit. If I see it in comics, though, and I, I'm trying to remember where I saw it, and I'm fairly certain I thought I did, that bugs me. That just really bugs me because it is not the sentence that is inverted. It is just all of the words. That's it. And honestly, it does bug me when people just, you know, are casually doing it online, too, because it's like, okay, come on. You should know better. Comic fans, be better. <sighs> all right. There you go. Top five comic book pet peeves. What are yours? New Comics Wednesday. Comic book recommendations for the week of July 6th. And I am going to start doing little reviews on some of the books that I am recommending. I figure since uh, this is a segment that is recurring every week, I could, you know, definitely try to record this particular segment after I have read one or two or three of the recommendations, either because I can get them digitally or perhaps uh, I was sent a review copy 
or an advanced copy. And that's actually what I'm going to do for uh, this particular segment at the end. I'm going to review one of the books that I am recommending. So let's get to those recommendations. We start with Black Caravan, Behemoth Number 1 by Chris Kapiniak and J.K. Woodward, $4.99. Teresa is horrified to wake up and find she's turning into a monster. She learns she's not the only one when the government throws her into a detention camp with others going through the same transformation. Surrounded by beasts, Teresa tries to hold on to her humanity by training to become a government weapon as part of Project Behemoth. And obviously I'm going to give this a recommendation because I follow J.K. Woodward. I've been following Woodward's artwork all the way back. Ooh, um, I don't know what the first book, maybe, maybe Fallen Angel with Peter David or whatever it was that introduced the artist to us um, at the time, uh, you know, when I was part of CGS or whether it was through Daryl Taylor or someone, um, but definitely been following uh, Woodward's career and whether, you know, he's on the interiors or on covers, uh, certainly there's been a lot of Star Trek stuff. So um, once I saw that this was finally being released, I, I wanted to give it a nod. From a blaze, we have Promethe 1313, number one, $3.99. Apparently, this is a prequel to Promethe, which is a best-selling graphic novel series by Christoph Beck. And apparently, there are multiple volumes of, of that particular story. And this is now... Uh, telling the thrilling, fast-paced space drama leading up to the moments of September 21, 2019-13-13, which gives, its, uh, gives it its title. So this particular story is by Andy Diggle, Sean Martinbrow, and cover art by Jock, a psychological sci-fi horror comic full of alien conspiracy. What if you knew the world was about to end? What would you be willing to do to save the people you love? Darla Clemenceau has been plagued by apocalyptic visions ever since she was abducted by a UFO as a child. Now she's ready to put it all behind her and move on with her life. But what if it's all true? A dangerous cult militia is prepping for the end of the world, and they see Darla as the key to their survival. Meanwhile, something alien is awakening on the dark side of the moon, and the crew of the space shuttle Atlantis have a rendezvous with destiny. From Storm King Productions, we have John Carpenter's Tales of Science Fiction tray paperback for $15.99. Uh, it's 2022. We all know the world has lost its collective mind, but not quite like this. With random strangers teaming up to commit bizarre acts of violence and self-destruction, from the Santa Monica Pier to the 101 Freeway to a posh Beverly Hills Mall, our only hope lies with four complete strangers, all of whom have had devastating encounters with this phenomenon, who team up in search of answers. And we have creators such as Dwayne Swierzynski, Andrea Moody, uh, Gigi Baldessini, Valerio Olario, Janice Chiang, cover art by Tim Bradstreet. 
From Dark Horse, we have the return of Matt Kent's Mind Management. Mind Management Bootleg, one of four, $3.99 with art and cover by Farrell Dalrymple. Previously in Mind Management, a covert government agency of psychic super spies fell into oblivion after one of their top agents went rogue. What looked like the end was only the beginning, as a former leader of mind management explores the darkest parts of the world and recruits a team of forgotten agents to rebuild the organization, bend reality, and go to war with a competing agency. It is the first ever comic book from Flux House, Matt Kint's all-new imprint, which features crime, science fiction, and humor stories, all told in startling and untraditional ways. I am way behind in any kind of great reading project for Matt uh, Kint, um, but always a creator that I'm... I'm uh, when I see their name attached to a project, I make note of it whether I'm going to read it anytime soon or not. And finally, the book I'm going to take a look at from Image Comics, we have Starhenge, Dragon and Boar, book one of six, by Liam Sharp for $3.99. A future Merlin travels to 5th century Britain to prevent monstrous time-traveling killer robots from robbing the universe of magic. And Amber Weaver's lively present-day narrative reveals how she becomes drawn into a war across time. The Terminator meets the Green Knight in 30 story pages, setting the scene for this original epic inspired by the Arthurian sagas. And there's a quote here from Liam Sharp. I've wanted to do my own image comic for 30 years. I've wanted to do a Merlin comic for even longer than that. This is a culmination of so many dreams and ambitions of mine finally being realized. And that makes it the most exciting and personal comic project I've ever done. I can't wait to see it on the shelves. So I was uh, sent a, an advanced preview copy, and I wanted to read it. Uh, certainly Liam Sharp, especially because of all the work he's done with Grant Morrison, uh, the Wonder Woman project that he was on, and just knowing the name... Um, uh, there was some certain expectations as I was going in. I knew the artwork was going to be um, very painterly looking and was going to be, uh, you know, very engrossing for the eye to look at. And that is definitely the case here. This book is very stunning. And um, I would have to read up on some of the inspirations that Liam Sharp may have who has inspired him as an artist. There are a couple pages in here where I'm like, okay, that feels like straight out of the book of Dave McKean, you know. Um, you get this comic for the artwork because it really is a feast for the eyes. I don't know the trim size. I imagine it's regular comic book size. I think that's a. I think that's going to be a little bit of a disservice to the artwork. It feels like it should be... Uh, Image used to do that golden age trim size, or certainly what DC is putting out with um, their black label line. This feels like it should exist in that kind of format because it is stunning to look at. 
Um, you know, I don't have an iPad yet, so or a decent iPad, I should say. Reading it on the laptop doesn't quite do it justice. But if you have a good size iPad, it's probably going to feel better. But in your hands, I have to imagine if it was just a bigger size, that could um, really help the, the, the artwork stand out. Um, the story, as that blurb mentioned, wrapping in Arthurian legend with the future, also the present, you're dealing with three different timelines, and somehow they're all going to merge. You can already get clues about how one ties to the other. Um, that's fairly, it, it feels fairly, it, the mystery is not in too deep, is what I'm trying to say. You know, once you read that first issue, um, the stuff from the beginning makes sense, more sense when you get to the stuff at the end, right? Okay, so that's good. That's what should happen in a book like this. Where this book feels a little standard, maybe a little first draft-like, is in the dialogue. Sometimes it can come across a little clumsy. Sometimes I feel like there's too much of it, and I feel like the artwork could speak for itself. Or there could be a stronger integration between the two, a stronger collaboration, so that things that happen on an emotional level, if there's like little reactions from other characters or because of a certain sequence or a certain, you know, there's a moment that happens and you want your characters to react, instead of sort of talking about it, you could just see them react. You know, you could you could see some other kind of artwork that would help you uh, tell the story. I think the first sequence, the first batch of pages, is exactly what is right. You know, it takes place in, what did it say, 5th century or whatever it was. So there isn't a lot of dialogue in that sequence. But it feels pretty good because you can you can follow the story. Um, the stuff that's sent, set in the quote-unquote present day the dialogue back and forth between what I assume is going to be the main character and her her person of interest. I don't know if they're, they're not a couple, but, you know, the, the, the two of them, the way they speak, that feels very generic TV script kind of writing. Uh, dialogue that just gets the story across because it, it needs to be quick and immediate Um it's a little too heavy on explaining things because there's a lot of information that Liam Sharp wants to put on the page. And then when you get to the future stuff, um, it, it again, I, I, I feel where it's coming from, but maybe the artwork um, could help drive that narrative and they could cut back on the uh, dialogue. Um and just because you have a few words that sound futuristic, is the dialogue really futuristic? It's, it's things like that. You know, I, I'm paying more and more attention to why certain comics feel right within, you know, my mind's ear. Like, as I'm reading it, they feel right to my brain and to my inside ear. And other times, dialogue just doesn't feel natural. Um, but it's not even comic book natural. It's just, it's, I don't know, there's just something about it. So the artwork is, you know, high marks. The story, um, I can see where it could be very interesting. And we have five more issues to go. 
the dialogue, mm, you know, that hopefully that's something that gets a little stronger as we go. But this is definitely Liam Sharp stretching himself. So as I said before, I'm I'm willing to allow for this story to grow because it doesn't look like much else that's on the stands when it comes to American comic books anyway. So do yourself a favor and, and try to find it, flip through it, uh, find some preview pages online, um, because I think you'll, if you're someone who likes comic book art and you really want to dig into artwork that is just different, um, this is a book that I am, I imagine would catch your eye. So give it a, give it a look. Starhenge number one from Image Comics. And there you go, that's your comic book recommendations and a little bit of Wednesday Night Fever. Uh, I will try to do more reviews week to week. I'm going to really try to, you know, find those advanced preview copies or maybe pick something up digitally. And then I'll even throw in some reviews of recent books, maybe not for that particular Wednesday, but maybe for a previous Wednesday. For instance, I wanted to try to read Variants number one by Gail Simone and Phil Noto um, from Marvel, and uh, I didn't get a chance to. So if I have that read by next week, I will do that. I'm just keeping tabs of certain things that I'm recommending, and I'm like, okay, let's try to read, and that way we can dig into uh, an even deeper kind of recommendation. All right, there you go. Your recommendations for the week of July 6th. Oh boy, folks, I hope you're ready for season seven of Just Another Fanboy because it's right around the corner. That's right. Tuesday, July the 12th is when the season is set to kick off. And you can expect, well, you can expect just a great big bunch of the same. I'm still reading through ElfQuest and Madman and G.I. Joe. But guess what? I've added Moon Knight, Conan, and the Bwahaha era of the Justice League to that list. That's on top of whatever else I may read that I just gotta get on here and talk about with y'all. And of course, I'm also gonna be talking about movies and TV and all that stuff. Like Ms. Marvel, uh, only murders in the building, you know, whatever floats my boat. Plus, don't forget more JAF classic episodes each and every Thursday. So yeah, it's just the same old stuff. And frankly, I wouldn't even be doing a trailer for season seven if places like Amazon Music didn't put the latest trailer right up there at the top of their podcast page. And if you're looking at going into season seven and the only trailer that you got out there is season three, well, it makes my back itch. I don't know why my back, but you know, what's a podcaster to do, right? Anyway, just another fanboy, season seven, Tuesday, July the 12th. Be there or don't. It's not really up to me, is it? A thought for Thursday, a few days after July 4th. All right, land stats roll call, land stats roll call. So we land people are the second oldest ethnic group in America after Native Americans. And yet at 22%, we have the highest high school dropout rate of any minority in this country. And at 32%, we are the most bullied ethnic group in the workplace. And at 40% of the prison population because of this immigration detention, we are now the largest ethnic group in jails. 
And 60% of hate crimes are perpetrated on us, so we've got the record there too. And we're 68 million hard-working, contributing Americans in this country who have added $2.3 trillion to the U.S. economy. If we were our own country, we'd be the eighth largest economy in the world. And our women, our women are number one in small business creations in America at 87%. And yet, the gatekeepers, your leaders and your executives are denying us access, are denying us a seat at the table. And how dare you? How dare you when that's cultural apartheid? When we're 50% of the population in Los Angeles, but less than 3% of the faces in front of the camera or behind the camera, that's cultural apartheid. When we're equal to whites in New York City in population size, but less than 1% of the stories or staff at the New York Times, at the New York Post, at the New Yorker, or any other rag that has a city on its banner, that's cultural apartheid. And how dare you? When we're so American, it hurts. Because we're the only ethnic group that has fought in every single war this country's ever had. We have shed blood for America in each and every single one of her wars. We're the most decorated minority in each and every single one of those wars. But where are our contributions? Where are they? Where are they listed, mentioned, or honored? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if they were put back into history, written back into history textbooks? Can you imagine how America would see us? More importantly, can you imagine how we would see ourselves? Friday Wrap-Up A few months back, I had a fairly interesting podcast experience. I had someone reach out, and they wanted me to give feedback on uh, ideas that they had for a podcast. And, um, you know, I, I, I gave some, some ideas and offered up some uh, light critiques, and it made me think, huh, I I like this, right? Like, it's not the first time, um, but, you know, putting all my years of podcasting experience, you know, 17 in total ever since uh, 2005, and then, you know, a good 10 years with everything I've been doing on the Daily Rios, um, there's a lot of experience there, and I've I've talked to people over the years about things like podcast names, uh, the focus of a podcast, podcast sponsorships. Um, but this one was a little different because it, it um, uh, you know, was actually more about critiquing the content um, after listening to, to some, some episodes. So it made me think this could be interesting, right? Like kind of like a podcast consultation almost, you know? Um, the way I envision it is this, you know, if you are a relatively new podcaster, I'm saying somewhere within like the last two to five years, right? Um, even that might be too long, but a, a newer podcaster, one that is still finding their feet, one that is still trying to figure out how to manage 
their focus or to make them stand out a bit more and and maybe get some new listeners or just try to really hone and sharpen their craft, I think this could be for you. So the way I envision it is I could listen to your very first podcast, warts and all, right? Don't, you know, I know a lot of people stress about their first podcast, but I, I think there's value in, in that first creation. So I would listen to your first podcast. I would listen to the most recent podcast. And then I would ask you to select a third podcast along the way that you consider to be your finest episode. So what I'm getting there is, you know, the very origins of your podcast. Uh, I'm getting to see how it has changed over the many episodes by listening to your most recent one. And then I'm getting what you think is your finest podcast without any explanation. You know, I'll listen to it and and I can sort of hear why, you know, or make make some assumptions why. Um, and I think that would be a really nice way for me to get a handle of what it is you're trying to do based on the content, based on the name of the podcast, right? Because names have meaning and the name of your podcast uh, uh, should have some some defining qualities for the overall topics or the overall focus. It's kind of the reason why I think you know, I think I said this on Twitter years ago, people should stay away from generic things like, you know, oh, this is the geek nerd show. This is the nerd fanboy hour because it's it's generic. And, and there are so many podcasts that are um, that are named that way that it doesn't tell me anything about your podcast other than it's geek-related or nerd-related, but that is such a huge topic, right? I think I mentioned in another Digest, I really liked uh, Jasper's, uh, there was a podcaster named Jas- Jasper. His podcast was called Burning Trash. And I, the imagery for that was so strong, and I really, really thought that was amazing. Think of something like boom addiction or comic addiction, right? Like, that means something, comic addiction, right? And uh, certainly there have been other, uh, quote-unquote, addictions, wild storm addiction and whatever. Like, it's a perfect word because then you can substitute other words for it. Um, quiet panelologists at work is a, a tongue twister, but it's it's an amazing podcast name. Nobody has touched that name, right? But it again, there's imagery to it, and there's it sets you up for listening to to the podcast. And then, of course, once you hear the content, um, it becomes a whole other thing. But it, it as a name, it is such a grabber. I really like that name. I've always liked comic book noise, right? Like there's something to the word noise, and that has been used. Marvel noise, uh, DC noise, uh, independent noise, or whatever. Like there's been other other usages of that. So that always is something that um, I, I think about. So names, names are important. You know, I could go on and on with names. So between the content, between the name, that first episode, that last episode, the finest episode, uh, I think I could come up with a really interesting consultation for your podcast. Are you hitting your targets? Are you making your conversations interesting? Are you getting to the point? 
Is your show being treated more like one of those Radio Zoo Crew shows, or are you actually trying to give good, clear information, right? Um, I think ensemble shows, the reason why I'm, uh, it's so hard for me to find a good ensemble show to listen to is because it just becomes too personality-driven and too attempting to be humorous as opposed to letting the humor just happen organically. And and I don't ever feel like the conversations are real because I feel like everybody is coming to the mic wearing some kind of comedic personality. Whereas if it's a good ensemble show and things just come out of it because it's funny, th- or, or funny things just seem to happen, um, that's more organic because you know the listeners. Like, you really know when they're real and and out of that realness comes um, great organic moments, you know. Um, not to hold up everything that CGS did in those early years, but I mean, there was there was just some funny things that just came out of the show by accident, and and that to me is far more organic, you know. But then there were moments where you knew where we were being real and where we had arguments and debates and. You knew who we were because we were honest. We weren't coming to the mic wearing a personality. So the content, is it focused? Is it is it being uh, true to who you are and what you want to do? Do you need editing? You know, is there, are there ways that I feel like you could cut an episode down because there's too much fluff, right? I love when I edit my podcasts. Uh, whether it's the solo podcast, whether it's a group podcast, whether it's the Legion Project, I am always cutting out pauses and little mistakes here and there. But there are some times where I'll listen to something I say and, I'm, and I'll go, why did I repeat that? Let's just cut that out. Um, I am not afraid to uh, really go in there and try to clean up episodes. And then, you know, maybe I'll ask you about what is your makeup um uh, based on whatever it is you're talking about in your podcast. You know, if it's comic books, what is your comic book DNA? What is, what are your strengths? And what is it that you want to make different that everybody else is doing? I really feel like every show should have a hook. Something that is unique to their podcast that sets them apart. And it could be a small segment. It could be uh, just the way that you are approaching your topics, but it needs to have a hook. A hook is not, oh, well, there's four of us as opposed to five of us. That's not a hook, right? Um, A hook is like when Raging Bullets started, you had uh, Sean, who was a veteran comics reader, and you had Jim, who was just getting back into comics, right? And then the way that um, collaboration worked, that was their hook. A hook could be, very simply, Stump the Rios from CGS, which became, you know, a huge segment over the years and and offered up many um, opportunities for other discussions or silly things that happened. Certainly the daily Rios, the daily part, was the hook for that first year. And other shows have that as well. Things that are like, that are very... Oh, here's one. So I listened to X-Men Unraveled. And that podcast, hosted by Noel, the hook is uh, going through the X-Men universe, but in a chronological sense. Not just starting back at, you know, X-Men number one, but going back in time through history 
and developing a narrative, a timeline narrative. And then that way you can look at comics from the early stages and you can also look at current comics and how all of that informs whatever the topic is. For instance, if you're doing Apocalypse, you can talk about all of the miniseries that feature Apocalypse's origin, but then you can also look at some of the modern comics that might touch in on origin stuff as well. So that is a that is a great hook for that particular podcast and is and really honestly is kind of unique. Certainly doing a niche podcast can be a hook, right? If you're focusing on one particular character, um, whatever that might be. Now certainly by this point there are a lot of podcasts looking at the same character. You know, there are a ton of Batman, a ton of Superman. Um, I'm sure Spider-Man gets a lot of love. But there has to be some some characters out there or some titles that have not been looked at or some writers or creators that have not been looked at. So these are hooks, and these are things that you should really have if you want to get into... I mean, I guess I'm talking about comics podcasting because that's my strength, but you know what I mean. Uh, And then certainly schedule. Schedule plays a lot, right? Uh, You don't want to overwhelm your listeners if you're a new podcaster. Um, If you are putting out multiple episodes a week, are they different enough that it makes people want to listen? Or maybe some of your listeners want to listen to a certain type of episode and maybe they don't listen to another type, right? Do you have enough um, choices for your listeners? So all of this is is exactly what I think a podcast consultation could be like. And, you know, if you want to put my 17 years of experience to the test, um, you know, I could lay out some pros and some cons, and I can offer up some different topic ideas and how to clean up your format and what your target goal should be if you're a a solo podcaster or duo, trio, ensemble, whether you're doing just comic, uh, whether you're just doing talk episodes or interviews, um, this is me putting on several different hats, you know, not only as a podcaster, but as a theater director and as an educator and as someone who has taken classes in analysis and, and I love the whole analysis format. I mean, this is, this is like a, this is a lot, you know, I don't know why, um, I haven't thought about this before, but I, after doing this a couple months ago, I was like, oh, I could do this, you know, I could, I could certainly do this. So, um, we'll see, let me see if, if you're out there and you want me, you want to take me up on this, um, I'm not doing this for pay, but maybe someday I will. So why not jump in now until I get too many requests and then I'm like, "Mm, okay, maybe I need some donations there. But for now, you know, I'd be happy to, uh, offer up some of my time you know, uh, so send me an email, send me an email on this or any topic here as we begin the volume two of the Daily Rios Digest, second year doing this, yay, the weekly Rios returning in a semi-new format, so if you liked, um, this format for this week, um, I mean, it's the same format, but if you liked the new topics I'm bringing out, um, I'm gonna try to, have a whole new energy again. I always get started. This See here, here's a good podcasting consultation tip. Find anniversaries or find ways to restart, reboot, whatever the, refresh, whatever the word is, because it really helps to focus you, right? 
those podcasts that just kind of go on and on and on and they never celebrate anniversary issues or their anniversaries or, um, you know, it, y- you need this kind of stuff because it, it keeps you interested and it keeps you invested. So um, that is something that I always love to do, even if all those ideas that I mentioned last I just don't come to play. That's okay. I got Marvel Saga. Uh, the first Marvel saga in this um, digest. I did a review in this digest. Yay, you know, we'll see if we can keep it going. So, all right, email me, peter at thedailyrios.com. Go and visit the website, The Daily Rios. Go and visit Instagram, uh, also The Daily Rios. Go visit the Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. I have to put this podcast on a few... um, platforms that I know it's not on just yet. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 568, for Saturday, July 9th, 2022. Talk to you soon. I'm gonna call myself the Human Torch. And I'll be with you as the Invisible Woman. Oh, and maybe you should call yourself Mr. Fantastic. Well, uh, rather presumptuous, but it does have a ring to it. Mr. Fantastic it is.